there's nothing like warm weather during one of the coldest months of the year. I'm fortunate to be in Southern Florida at an incredible event put on by Tony Robbins called Date with Destiny. It's my third event with Tony and I'm actually here with my wife as well. But I'm gonna save this experience for uh, another day. We're gonna do a bonus episode with my wife in the next uh, next couple of days, so definitely stay tuned for that. But today we have the second to final episode of season three of the Wealth Standard podcast. Hope you guys have enjoyed this year. And you know what? I didn't really plan for this uh, 15th episode with my guest, Mike Cobb, but it worked out perfectly. I've known Mike for a number of years. He recently wrote an article. It was actually, I believe, the beginning of this year, beginning of 2018, with the topic of what we've been discussing all year, which is uh, by John Locke. It's the uh, life, liberty, and pursuit of property. I met Mike a couple years ago on an investment cruise that we were both speaking at, and what a stellar guy. The energy level he has the knowledge he has, the experiences that he's gone through. And and I'm gonna add one of the variables I think are the most unique and certainly the most valuable, which is his uh, understanding of principle and understanding of history and understanding of man, humankind, I guess I should say, and our capacity to take this experience, human experience and learn how to take our knowledge and our intellect and our talents and our abilities in the material world around us and create an incredible life. So you're gonna hear some really cool stories and you're gonna probably hear about something that you didn't know about before, which has to do with a, a very long-term type of investment in the forestry space. And so you guys are totally in for a treat. So let's go ahead and cut to the second to final episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast. We're almost done. And like I said, there'll be a bonus episode toward uh, the end of uh, mid end of next week that will discuss our next season and the theme that we're going to use. And uh, I'm going to get my wife on here too. And we're going to talk about the experience we've had at this incredible event down here in Southern Florida. So let's go ahead and cut to the interview. Hope you guys enjoy, and we will talk to you next week. This is Patrick Donahoe, signing off. Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating the principles of life, liberty, and property. You are listening to season three, Property. My guest today is Mike Cobb, and Mike is uh, the CEO and co-founder of ECI Development and president of Grand Pacifica. And Mike and I met a couple of years ago on the Real Estate Guys uh, Summit, Investor Summit at Sea, and uh, we also connected uh, just a few weeks ago at another event in Bermuda. And you know, Mike's an awesome guy, and you're going to hear a little bit about his background. But first, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Patrick. Nice to be here. Yeah. So, Mike, I think the first, when I knew we were going to be talking today, I remember, you know, you were really passionate about, you know, taking, you know, uprooting your family in a sense and living abroad outside the United States uh, for the last over a decade now, uh, 14 years. And I think that's really intriguing. So can you give us maybe a little bit about your background and what led up to that? Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, north of Pittsburgh. And after college, just graduated college in 86. And 
Unfortunately, it was a depressed area of, of the country. And so I moved to the DC area, worked in the computer business for about 12 years on the PC side of things. And but in 94, I went to Belize for my very first trip, just on vacation to have some fun with a buddy of mine, the, the co-founder, Joel Nagel's his name. And we, we bought a couple condos, started to rent them out. And what we saw kind of interestingly was that there was no mortgage money for North Americans in Belize generally. And so, you know, because a bank up in the States or Canada would not lend money on collateral in Belize and the banks in Belize didn't want to lend money to foreigners, right? So, so you had this weird hole in the marketplace. So we actually started a little mortgage company in 1995. And I went out to a bunch of my buddies in the computer business, raised some money. Joel went to a bunch of his clients. We put the other couple million bucks and we started buying mortgage paper all over Ambergus Key. It was a phenomenal business. The paper was usually mature, you know, two, three, four year mature paper, 12 to 14% interest rates. And we were buying for 80 cents on the dollar. I mean, like this is, right? And, and so, it was the 80s, but that's still pretty good for the, that's still pretty good for the 80s. Well, uh, 90, no, not, sorry, mid-90s, sorry. Mid-90s, yeah, mid-90s. Yeah. But yeah, so it was a great business. And, but what we saw, my, my, Joel is the deal guy. He's the money finance side of things. I'm the more boots on the ground guy. And so what I did was I ran around and looked at the collateral, right? So I would go and look at these condos and these homes that had been bought a year, two, three, four years. And what I saw was incredible. I'd see this, like you'd walk into a living room and there would be, an outlet on the wall and there'd be two outlet strips, one going each direction, right? With extension cords plugged into the outlet strip running around the edges of the wall so that you'd have power all the way around a living room or a bedroom, right? They had one outlet in the living room or one in the bedroom, right? Uh, Door handles at different heights and kitchen countertops too high, too low, whatever it was. We just started to put our heads together and we said, gosh, like, to fix this stuff is almost free, right? To put all the door handles at the right height, to get the countertops the right height, put the mirror centered over the lavatory, you know, over the sinks. I mean, you know, just simple stuff, right? And so we started a development company. And in 1998, we uh, bought a small resort in Belize. I moved to Belize with my new wife, Carol. Uh, We didn't have any kids at the time. We lived in Belize for six, seven months, turned the property around. And then moved back to the States. And in 98, 99, I did a lot of work in Panama on a teak plantation. Maybe we'll cover that later. But in 2000, we bought a giant piece of property in Nicaragua, one hour west of Managua, the capital. And I say giant. It was three and a half miles of Pacific beachfront. And the property is a mile deep, right? It's 20, 2,500 acre property. And so in 2002, it was time to really get down there. We'd done the initial permitting and master planning. Uh, my wife, Carol, my daughter, Amanda, who was two at the time, we literally picked up, left Shepherdstown, West Virginia, where we own a home, same home, we kept it. We moved to Nicaragua for what we thought would be two, three, maximum four years to you know, get a company started, right? And so we did. We went down there. We hired architects, engineers, a chief operating officer, county people, I mean, IT, marketing, the whole thing. We put the whole team together, and about three and a half years into it, my wife and I go out to dinner one night and we took a piece of paper and, and I know you're a big Tom Hopkins fan. I'm a big Tom Hopkins fan. You know, we took the piece of paper, we drew the line down the middle and we did the old Ben Franklin, stay in Nicaragua, go back to the U.S. And the list to stay went down the front and onto the back. The list to go back to the States was maybe a third of the way down one side. And, and so we ended up staying in Nicaragua another 11, almost 12 years by choice it was an incredible quality of life. Uh, cost of living was silly cheap. I mean, silly cheap. 
but the quality of life was higher, and which is paradoxical, actually. How can you have a higher quality of life with a lower cost of living? But it's possible in the developing world, and, and we did. And, and we moved back to the States uh, almost exactly two years ago now. My, one of my daughters, uh, my oldest, Amanda, was 15, got accepted into a ballet program in New York City. And my wife, you know, Mama Bear was like, you know, we're not living in Nicaragua with Baby Bear in New York City. So we came back to Shepherdstown and we've been here for the last couple of years. So Mike, your perspective on what's going on in emerging markets, I think, is intriguing. You know, I, my wife is from Mexico originally, grew up there, and I grew up in the Northeast. The differing perspectives really helped me, right? I had a, a bigger view of the world and how people live and and, you know, we see innovation all around us in the U.S., but oftentimes, you know, because of how big the world is, we're seeing what's on TV as far as the how to determine what type of growth is occurring or what's going on outside the U.S. But why don't you just talk briefly about what you saw in emerging markets, you know, specifically Central America markets. What are you seeing? Like, I mean, obviously people will be like, you raise your kids in Nicaragua. Like, if you said that to the normal person, they'd you know, look at you funny, which I'm sure people have looked at you funny in the past. They do. <laughs> but talk about that and what your experience is versus the, the stigma that's out there. Yeah, absolutely. The best concept I can put around this is time machine. Going to a country like Costa Rica, Panama, Nicaragua, Belize, anywhere in Central America is literally like getting in a time machine. My presentation, I sometimes will ask this question. I say, okay, how many of you if you had an H.G. Wells stop right now in the middle of this room with this time machine and we could all jump on it, take one check, one check, and go back 20 years and we could all make one investment, how many of us would come back to this moment wealthier, right? And I mean, everybody puts up their hand or you know, a few people are a little slow and they don't, but, you know, <laughs> but, but right, I mean, time machine, right? This hindsight's twenty twenty, And so what we see in the developing world, Central America specifically in this case, is we see the time machine concept. That's sort of the, the imaginative word that I use. But the more technical word is path of progress, right? Path of progress. And so a country like Costa Rica, Panama are pretty far up this curve now. Panama, because it was, you know, the canal and we've had U.S. presence, military presence there for 100 years. And Costa Rica, because 45 years ago now, they really jumped on the bandwagon of tourism and promoted themselves as a tourist destination. So they have moved up this popularity curve, path of progress curve, right? Whereas a country like Belize is a little further down and a country like Nicaragua is really far down. And this curve, by the way, if folks want this curve, they can reach out to you and you could send, I'll send it to you. You can forward it on to folks. It's a pretty powerful visual tool because here's how I put the countries on it. What I said to myself was I said, where do people from Utah or Midwest America, wherever, where did they take their honeymoon? Where is someone, I mean, you know, Pacific coast to Costa Rica. Absolutely. People going to Costa Rica for their honeymoons. There's a Four Seasons, a JW Marriott, a couple Marriott's. I mean, Weston's. I mean, it's fully on. Panama, almost there too, right? So lots of people taking their honeymoons in Costa Rica. Not a lot of people taking their honeymoons in Nicaragua. And what that means is, is I know a lot of your listeners and readers are cash flow people, right? And so what you've got to kind of understand is that where you have popularity, you have cash flow. You have people coming and renting, right? And where you have less popularity or somewhere in the middle, like less renters, less cash flow, but it's priced into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And so you get into a country like Nicaragua, it doesn't cost much. I mean, for example, an oceanfront condo on one of the 10 best surf breaks in Central America. I mean, it's been on the cover of Surf Journal, Kelly Slater films there. I mean, this is like world-class surf break, right? Mm -hmm. Empty. Oceanfront condo, 129, right? 129. 
And so will you get the cash flow you would get in Costa Rica? No, you're not going to get the same kind of, you're not going to get the same kind of average daily rate. You're not going to get the ADR. You're not going to get the occupancy rate yet. But as Nicaragua climbs the curve, what's your cost basis? Your cost basis on that's 129. Right. That same condo in Costa Rica cost you 350. Right. So you start to run those numbers and, and I'm a big fan of diversification, right? You should have a little bit of both. You shouldn't plug either place real hard, get some across that whole spectrum. So path of progress is to me the single most important takeaway at 30,000 feet time machine. I'll give your listeners, clients, the best tip. The first person, I keep saying this and I hope somebody does it. I'm a big fan. The first person who puts a dairy queen (laughs) in Nicaragua is going to clean up. And we have McDonald's, Quiznos, Subway, TGI Fridays. We've got all these chains, right? No, there's no Dairy Queen. Dairy Queen, yes. <laughs> I look at it as, it's interesting because I think countries or destinations, there's a brand. It, in and of itself, it's a brand, right? You think of Costa Rica, something comes to mind, right? You think of Nicaragua, something comes to mind. You think of Guatemala, something comes to mind. You think of Mexico, something comes to mind. So I look at Costa Rica and how beautiful it is And it's a supply and demand issue, right? Where the reason why you can get a beachfront condo there is because there's only so much beachfront and it also has brand recognition. But when you have more people going, which I think is increasing because of the older population retiring and wanting to travel and uh, go on cruises and, and so forth, that's when essentially at some point doesn't make sense because there's only so much beachfront. So that's where you look at, okay, similar destinations. I think Belize, case in point, where who knows where Belize is? I mean, I mean, most people know where Mexico is. Most people know rough where Panama is because of the Panama Canal. But where's Belize, right? Most people don't know that. But I think it's coming online, right, really because bodies some of the characteristics of some of those popular destinations. But there are others, like Nicaragua is one. And we, I have some friends are in Guatemala right now, and they're doing these pictures of these huge mansions that they're staying in how beautiful they are for the cost of a hotel room in Costa Rica, right? So it's, it's one of those things where Central America specifically, despite its issues, right, which are in the headlines right now, right, is coming into, coming into its own and really appeasing the demand that's out there for beautiful places to travel to. Right. And you mentioned Belize. Belize actually was the first place I did business. I still do business there. I, I actually think Belize on that curve is kind of in the sweet spot. It, it's not as mature as Panama or Costa Rica. It's not as unpopular as a country like Nicaragua. It's kind of right here in the middle. So it's got cash flowness now. Southwest opened up, I guess, maybe three years ago. Southwest started flying in three years ago. They've opened up some new routes. They're in from Denver. They're in from Fort Lauderdale now. They're in from Hobby Houston. West, one year ago, opened up from Toronto. They're opening up from Calgary this year. So now you have these uh, discount carrier airlines coming in, bringing the more mainstream tourists to a country like Belize. And, you know, we've been working there since uh, 1994. And uh, we owned a prop that 1998. When I moved to Belize with my wife, we lived in this little tiny resort on Ambergris Key. Three years ago, we bought the property right next door. We've since signed a franchise agreement with Marriott Corporation. And we're in the development phase. We'll be into construction Q1 of next year for a Marriott resort and residences on Ambergris Key. Right. But the market is ready for it. Five years ago, the market would not have been ready for a Marriott class hotel. I know that the folks you've uh, talked with on your program before, they're working with the Curio Hilton product there on Ambergris Key. There's a Marriott autograph under construction right now as well. So what we're seeing is we're seeing this interesting transformative moment in time in Belize. In fact, I just wrote an article came out today, actually, on this concept of the timing of that sweet spot of the marketplace and 
how the market has just transformed over the 20, what, 24 years since, since I've been working there. So, but, but it's neat to watch these things happen over a couple of decades, right? And be part of that transformation as well. And then to help folks like your listeners and, and your readers to see these opportunities, understand what these opportunities are and how they might best fit depending on their investment goals, right? I mean, some people want cash flow, but they're willing to take less percentage cash flow, but a more certain cash flow. Other people want to take a little more risky, buy it in at cheaper, and other people want the sweet spot. So again, knowing this big picture concept allows people to put themselves right in the spot that best fits their investment goals, which is what you're all about and what we're all about, right? It's all about the client. How can we help the client get what they are looking for in terms of an investment and a return type? And this is where, you know, I talked to you about the theme that we've been using this year, which just continues to, fa- continues to fascinate me because you have, there's a, a saying that we've used that uh, John Locke, who is a philosopher in 1700s, pursuit of life, liberty, and property, which ultimately became part of the Declaration of Independence. Back then, right, where lives in, in Europe, which is still under a semi-authoritative rule, right, talking about how a person can use their mind, right, when they have freedom and essentially develop property into something that's valuable to other people. So I think really those such as yourself who see the beauty in these different countries, whether it's Nicaragua or Costa Rica or Panama or any other beautiful place, and figured out ways in which you can create a resort, create an environment where people could have uh, experiences. It's, it's profound. And that's where I look at, you've opened the doors and others open the doors of development, right? Which has allowed bigger brands to, to come in. Those bigger brands don't, don't need to take those type of risks, right? They essentially look for opportunities to piggyback on the risk that has already been taken. And uh, so I look at, you know, the development of just, you know, Central America and those beautiful places all year round, right? And how desirable they're going to be for the growing population of travelers and and vacationers. You know, what I wanted to do is I'll give you make any comments you want in regards to that. But I wanted to talk about something that I find fascinating with what you're doing in regards to teak, which I think really plays into this whole, whole idea and whole theme too of really taking something that I don't even know what the heck it is but taking something, right, and creating a business opportunity out of it. But maybe speak to a comment that I just made in regards to the development of these beautiful places in the world, then we can get into the, the teak conversation. Absolutely. It's wonderful. Not very often. In fact, maybe the first time ever, Patrick. I don't think I've ever talked about John Locke on a, a podcast. A podcast or a conversation. <laughs> this is wonderful. And in fact, I wrote an article recently for the National Association of Realtors. I was a director with the National Association and serve now serve on their business alliances committee, uh, global business alliance committee. But I wrote an article about that whole part of why real estate is an incredibly powerful foundation for the United States. And Jefferson tweaked it, by the way, when he changed it to uh, happiness. But property was the foundation for that, that concept, right? And private property specifically, let's be clear, private property, right? That allows people to take and find the highest, best use and then serve clients. The development process. I've been a student of the development process and have actually given some presentations uh, on a semester at sea about this exact topic. A lot of great books out there. One that I think is just powerful, and, and you're probably familiar with Hernando Soto, The Mystery of Capital. Yeah, uh, yeah right. a phenomenal read that really, in my mind, encapsulates the development process or the development challenges in Central and South America or the developing world. And so you're right. Companies like ours come in. We address the risk factor. We bring a 
technology, for lack of a better word. It's a mental technology. It's a process. It's a system of development. But it's also a philosophical construct in the sense that we bring the idea that, hey, you know what? The pie can get bigger. A lot of the developing world is zero sum or the pie is this big. And if you get any, I get less, right? There is no bigger making of the pie, right? And so we can come with philosophical constructs, whether it's private property and free capitalism or pie gets bigger or, or just something as simple as, I mean, you heard me mention the Curio Hilton, the Marriott Autograph. These are my competitors, right? But we understand as North Americans that McDonald's on one corner does okay. You stick a Burger King, a KFC, and a Wendy's on the other three, all four do better, yeah. right? Or all the car dealerships are on that same highway somewhere, That's right? That's true. Yep. And so these are philosophical constructs that we bring. It's a technology that we bring as foreigners into the developing world. And probably as much as our money, certainly our money is important because capital is an issue, as Hernando Soto really draws out very well in his book. So capital is important, but intellectual capital is equally vital to the process of progress and development as we would define it in the United States. And, and quite honestly, as you can probably tell from my excitement here, it's what gets me up in the morning. This is what motivates me. I mean, yeah, we want to make money. Yeah, we're a company. We're in business to make money and serve our shareholders and, and clients, right? First the client, then our shareholders, right? But at the end of the day, that's not what gets me out of bed and gets me excited. It, it's really this, this ability to come and be transformative to a developing country with both the money and the intellectual capital as well to change how it's viewed, how things are done and pretty exciting stuff. I think that's what Locke meant, right? I think he understood this internal drive of humankind, right, to create. Once I think you have that lens, you can see, I was watching the Jungle Book with my son the other day and and Mowgli, right? What separated him from the animals, right? It's his ability to think and come up with solutions. And and I think Locke, he, he understood that, but he also understood the restriction is going to be the environment in which it takes place, where if you do have like a monarchical rule, they're dictating how you live. Therefore, you're not going to, you know, that part of your drive is going to be suppressed, right? So, so really, it's like when there is freedom, when there is opportunity, and then, you know, you combine capital with it and property, that's when there's just some amazing things that be created from it. And there's examples of it, of it everywhere. If I look at, again, going to your business, a development of actual real estate property, right, is... I mean, it is a feat in and of itself. And I don't think most people really understand or or value really what goes into effective development of something that could take six months, nine months, a year, and how all the different parts and things need to be orchestrated. There's so much beauty in how you take something that doesn't exist and turn it into something that does exist, right? Or at least exists at a very fundamental rudimentary level and then turn it into something that's just a desirable place to go visit and create memories, right? It's just fascinating to think through. Let's talk teak, right? Because I think teak kind of fits into this, the same idea. I think people, teak, it's like, okay, wood, or is that a stain? Or is like, what? Tell us about your passion with teak. Yeah, sure. By the way, there is one answer to that question. It was a long question. The answer is people. The answer is your team. The team is what translates idea, business plan, concept into reality. It's all about the people. And, and we're very fortunate to have an incredibly powerful, sophisticated, and dedicated team on the ECI company. So anyway, That's so a that- a whole other dynamic that we could get into yeah. is how to orchestrate a team. Yeah, right? <laughs> That's well, right. So anyway, let's talk about Teak. Teak is really cool because I didn't know anything about it. Back in 1998, we read an article by uh, Kathy Pettacord, who many 
you guys probably have heard of Kathy. Anyway, she wrote an article about teak as a reforestation product. Both Vietnam and Panama actually had a reforestation program. So there were a group of six guys. We all got together, said, hey, let's throw in some money. Let's do this teak thing. So we flew over to Vietnam, 12, 14 days, whatever. It was 14, but 12 in country, right? And great. I mean, beautiful. This was 98, right? So this is early Vietnam kind of changing. But what we realized was it was way too far. The time zone was exactly 12 hours or whatever, opposite East Coast. Like it would have been a real nightmare to manage, right? So to manage. We also went down to Panama and we saw that the reforestation center programs are pretty strong as well. So being the boots on the ground guy, it was really my job to go and begin to figure this out, right? The other guys all had jobs, right? Joe was a lawyer. And, you know, I'm boots on the ground guy. So go figure it out. And I remember this is the long before Google, right? 98. So I live about an hour and a half west of Washington, D.C. I live in the Shenandoah Valley. So back then I did too with that 14 years in the middle of Nicaragua. But anyway, I went down to the Library of Congress and I got a bunch of books on teak. And what I found, this is really interesting, teak has been uh, raised in plantation by the British starting about 350 years ago in India, uh, what was then Burma, Myanmar now, Indonesia. And so these books that I was referencing uh, really were incredible because they had 350 years of statistical record keeping of soil conditions, weather, rainfall, altitudes. I mean, just on and on and on. And so I got smart enough to be able to go to Panama and interview forestry companies about taking on our project, right? Helping us find a piece of property and then managing. I knew I just could sort of scratch the first layer of the onion, but I needed to at least understand if somebody was blowing smoke at me, right? On their answers to some of my questions, right? But the company we ultimately selected is a company called Hale Forestall. One of the principal reasons, they answered all the questions, they were, they've been in business a while, but they were actually the company that grew the seedlings that most of the other forestry companies in Panama used to plant plantations. And so they were just getting into the management side of things. So we took a little chance on them, but they'd been in the nursery business for, for a long time and genetic side of the teak. So uh, we hired them and we bought a hundred acre cattle pasture. And we would grass and brush, we cleared it, planted, I think it was 44,000 trees, I forget, some number of teak trees, but we didn't plant them in the forestry company did. And just literally kind of sat back for the last 19 years. I mean, the forestry company manages it, they thin it, they take care of it. But I remember back, this would have been 99 now, the trees actually went in the ground in July and August of 1999. I'm in the Rotary Club, I live right across the street from the Bavarian Inn, it's right on the Potomac River, beautiful. And they have the rotary meeting there every Tuesday morning. So I'd slip across the street at seven o'clock and eat breakfast till 7.30. Ding, the bell rings. You have your rotary meeting. Yeah. But from seven to 7.30, it'd be a table of eight or 10 folks. And hey, Mike, you missed the meeting last week. Where were you? Oh, I was down in Panama. And what are you doing in Panama? Oh man, we bought this farm and you're laughing, <laughs> you're laughing already. Right? So you know, we bought this farm. We're going to plant these teak trees. And in 25 years, we're going to cut them down. We're going to make a lot of money. And the heads would shake and they just go, you're crazy, Cobb. What are you doing? Panama, 25 years, right? And the answer I got finally after a couple of weeks of hearing this kind of nonsense around the tables was like, look, guys, in 25 years, I'm going to either need this money and be really glad I did this. Or in 25 years, I'm not going to need the money and I'm going to be really glad I did this. So here we are 19 years later. I'm really glad I did this. Our trees are, I mean, I don't know, they're, you know, kind of this big around. I mean, they're 
14 to 18 inch diameter and they're 60, 70 feet tall. I don't know how tall they are. They're tall. But here's the thing. They're just average. Our trees are just kind of average, which is fine. It's what they're supposed to be, right? Unlike folks in Lake Wobegon where all the children are above average, right? <laughs> but I mean, our trees are average. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're growing. And what is this, 19 years? So in six more years, you know, we're going to harvest them and, and make a ton of money and we're going to replant. In fact, I've got a guy headed down there week after next now to look for a new property. We're going to pick up another maybe 250 acres and plant another plantation in Panama. And we're doing the same thing in Nicaragua right now. We planted about 60 acres of our Grand Pacifica property. We've surveyed off another, I think, 45 to plant this year. So we're continuing to plant teak because teak is one of those incredible investments that Again, you're a Kiyosaki fan. I'm a Kiyosaki fan, and and you know, and the, and the rental and the cash flow and that kind of stuff is is really important. And and when we think about cash flow periods, most of us think about maybe it's every two weeks we get a paycheck, right? Or every month we get a rent check from somebody if we're if we're doing the Kiyosaki cash flow thing, right? Mm-hmm. Or if we have stocks and bonds and we're not a day trader, maybe we're moving in and out of those annually or every you know, right? So our periods tend to be two weeks to maybe two years. Mm-hmm. The thing about teak that I love. And again, it's not something you would do a lot of your money with, but a small piece of your assets to put into what I call the 25-year cash flow period. Mm-hmm. 25 years, right? There's nothing in the middle, right? I mean, you, they grow and you cut them down, right? You create this huge asset, you cut them down, you plant them again. And in 25 years, you cut them down for the next generation. And one of the tabs on your website, I was looking around and we chatted about this before we got online, but mm-hmm. is legacy. Timber generally Teak specifically for us because we like the region of Central America and teak grows exceptionally well in those latitudes, about 12 degrees, 10 to 12 degrees. And Panama sits, you know, 9.86. I mean, it's right there at 10, right? Perfect spot. Perfect spot, perfect rainfall, perfect soils. It really works well. It's a beautiful generational wealth stewardship tool. I have stocks and bonds. I have a 401k and I've got other investments. I've got properties. I've got sort of that two week cash flow one month, two year cash flow, right? We all need that in our lives, right? But someday when I die, and nobody likes to think about dying, but we're all going to die. So someday when I die, if I died now, my kids would be 14 and 18. And hopefully they wouldn't go sell off all my stocks and buy Ferraris and Lamborghinis. But I don't know, I won't be around, right? I don't know what they'll do. But the nice thing about Teak is, is even in six more years, they'll be 21 and 25 or whatever. I can't do my math for good in my head. Anyway, 2020, yeah, 21 and 24, right? 21, 25, right? And so they'll be more mature. But even if they were to blow that money, right? Even if the, my two daughters just blew the money on Lamborghinis or whatever it was they bought, it gets replanted. And then in 25 more years, when they're in their 50s, they're going to get another harvest proceed. And hopefully, presumably, they'd be a lot more mature and be able to steward that money better. And and then it gets cut down and it gets replanted. And maybe the next one's for their kids, right? It's a powerful, powerful generational wealth stewardship tool precisely because it's not liquid. Everyone's always, oh, liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. Yeah, it's important. I get it. I mean, for most of your portfolio. But if you can take 5 or 10% of your portfolio and lock it up and make it illiquid, mm-hmm. I personally believe you are doing future generations an incredible favor because you're locking it up and keeping it out of the hands of late teen, early 20 year old kids. I mean, yeah. I say that, but I mean, kids, right? So the one thing that stood out to me, and I t- sometimes will classify these types of assets as perennial asset, which is assets that 
ultimately last forever. And sometimes it doesn't appease the short-term intrigue people have with regards to investment, but doesn't mean that they're not valuable. I think in a sense, they're even more valuable. But what it does, I would say, is it really plants, I mean, but it really kind of plants this one investment that will just have consistent dividends, which will require probably little to no increase in operational expenses, barring inflation and cost of living increases. It's not to say that that's an asset that's uh, just boring. and But it also, when you compare it to a lot of the investment that has been made over the last like 10 years, which is mostly in real estate and markets where there are really good rent to value ratios, you know, that's where you have a lot of opportunity for short-term gain, but yet they're not perennial assets. And the example I gave to you is if you buy 15 homes in Columbus, it's going to outperform a teak investment, right? In the short term. Okay. But 25 years from now, I'm not sure you know, how valuable those homes in Columbus will be without massive amounts of operational costs and improvement right. expenses. So the idea is that it's a different type of investment, right? This is a, a more of a legacy perennial type of investment, which, you know, whether it's farmland or timber or other mineral type of investments, I mean, there's lots of opportunity there. But what I find, what I found fascinating is you're intrigued getting into the research at the Library of Congress, right, into the nature of teak and why it's so desirable. Because if something takes that long to harvest, like it, that's, you know, that's an asset they're not going to have much competition in because of how long it's going to take to actually play out. Talk about how Teak works and what that opportunity is as far as how it's used, what the demand is and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. That is one of the things, right? I mean, if, if all of a sudden next year or the year after Teak becomes even more demand, right, you can't rush out and make it, right? I mean, you had to have planted them 20 years ago for it to, yeah, right. So it takes foresight and it takes the ability to understand that these products should, I guess, a future event. I mean, we all understand the investment concept of a future event, right? Who knows? Nobody can predict the future, right? But the nice thing about Teak with a 350-year track record, right? It's been plantation. It's been in demand for 350 years. And just in the last 100 since it was the data we have, is it's actually a little over 100 years now. But the last 100 years, Teak has increased in value by 5.5% a year on average for 100 years. Right, it's got its ups and downs, a commodity, right? It moves up and down, but five and a half percent per year growth in the value of teak. Now we're talking about the growing of the tree. We're just talking about lumber sold as lumber, five and a half percent a year. And so then you have the actual growth of the trees. The kinds of IRRs, when you run those numbers, it's double digit. It's 10, 11, 12% IRRs over 25 years. I mean, you're talking about compounding over 25 years at that kind of a rate. It's huge, right? Yeah. And just the easy numbers. I mean, 50 grand turns into a little over a million kind of round number kind of things. And again, the idea is that it doesn't take very much to get in today, but the legacy you leave for the kids, grandkids in 25 years is, is significant. And because of some of the qualities of teak, very unique wood in the sense that it's impervious to rot, fungus, molds. It's a very hard wood and it has a, a very high oil content. In fact, uh, for many years, for centuries or a century and a half, I guess, they used teak as a predominant wood in the oil industry because it didn't spark. Okay, mm -hmm. So, I mean, it had some really curious industrial uses. We're most familiar with it, boat, the decks of boats, the chairs on the Titanic, as well as the decks were all teak wood. Furniture, teak furniture, it weathers very well. It holds up to the environment. So, so teak is an incredibly long-lasting product that has a very long track record, centuries-old track record of being in demand for its natural properties.
for the most part. Yeah, my uncle has a lives on Cape Cod. My parents live on Cape Cod, but my uncle's been there forever, and he uh, bought this Grand Banks, which are these old, very kind of iconic trawlers. The majority of value is in the wood, and it's all teak. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Right. It's crazy, but the teak is exceptionally valuable. Yeah. Well, Mike, this has been awesome. We're going to post, if you wouldn't mind, we can take some of the articles that you've written recently. We can add those to show notes and, and our social media posts. But this has been, been a fascinating conversation. We're going to post like your web link and so forth, but there are there other ways in which uh, people can uh, follow you or learn more about you? Yeah, ecidevelopment.com, info at or mcop at will get to me, right? Info at ecidevelopment.com will find its way to me. And that's really our property website. Uh, If you're interested in that chart, that popularity chart, it's part of our consumer resource guide. We actually publish a consumer resource guide. It's not a sales document. And it's got the 15 questions that every property buyer should ask when they buy property overseas, questions that we as North Americans wouldn't necessarily think to ask. So if any of your folks are thinking about a property overseas, this consumer resource guide is great. If they send an email, info at ECI, and just write consumer resource guide or something in the subject line. If they're interested in the TEAK, just write TEAK in the subject line, and we'll send something out about that. It's, they're separate businesses, but that's probably the easiest one-word answer to be able to get to me. And yes, I would love to provide some articles as well, and it's good stuff for folks if they want to dig a little deeper. Well, Mike, thanks so much for your passion and for sharing it with us today. It's been an awesome conversation. Indeed. Well, hey, and thanks for having me. And, and I'm glad we got Locke in there. That was fantastic. That was fun. All right. Take care, Mike. Happy holidays. Bye now. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.